Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And today we and... are joined by... Oh, hi there. Uh, it's Anthony Oliveira. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, thank you for doing this. Talk about the best episode of the whole Buffyverse canon. Okay, that's a bold <laughs> statement. <laughs> I will. I can back it up, and you guys have. I didn't know you famous. felt that way about gingerbread. <laughs> gingerbread. Hey, gingerbread's pretty good. <laughs> but <laughs> but amends to me is like the Rosetta Stone of like all of the Joss Whedon stuff. So oh, I'm yeah. super excited yeah. to talk about this. <laughs> Okay, well, before we get into the episodes, um, tell us your Buffy origin story, Anthony. Oh, God. Um, well, I have a few, like any good origin story, you always find out there was, like, previous stuff. But the first, I can remember the first time I ever um, became, like, remotely aware of Buffy as a thing. And it's, like, the most shallow, horny teen story. I was flipping <laughs> through the channels. Um do you remember, is it called Out of Sight, Out of Mind, the one where the invisible girl yes. in season one? So I distinctly recall I was in the living room of my parents. I must have been, well, let's see, 1997. I would have been 13. Um, 13, 12 or 13. And I'm flipping through channels like in my parents' living room. Like My parents are like in the kitchen. And I distinctly recall the scene in that where the invisible girl, so you can't see her, she's just holding a baseball bat absolutely wailing on that one jock in the shower. Do you remember that? Yes. <laughs> yes. That is my Buffy origin story. That was the first time I was like, what is this? I'm watching this forever. <laughs> but the first episode I ever watched was Prophecy Girl um, oh. in my cousin's basement. Uh, I don't know why I was there or where my cousins were, uh, but that was the first time I saw it, and I was like, oh my god, this show's amazing. And I've been a devotee ever since. <laughs> I used to run a uh, help run a Buffy the Vampire Slayer message board online. Oh my god, really? Yes, yeah. <gasps> my my handle was Kissing Toast, which is Kakistos. That's what Buffy miscalls yeah. Kakistos. <laughs> <laughs> um, I fully once ran away from home to go hang out with this girl that I met on the, the message board. We're still very good friends. She lives in Portland now, but she lived in Ohio at the time. I lived near Toronto, so I fully stole my passport, got on a bus, fully like ripping off Buffy's thing from the end of season two to go hang out with this girl. So, uh, <laughs> oh God, I love that. I am a fan since way back. Hmm. That's a pretty good origin story, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> Amends. Uh, you know, it's Christmas time in good old Dale, and there's a heat wave. Actually, we open on, um, we open in Dublin in the 1800s. We open with that scene oh, right, of, yeah. um, Angel, um, which one is it? It's the, he, he kills the guy. The guy, think, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah, the guy with the, like, gambling debt. Who then right? says Whatever. he was, like, doesn't he say later in the episode that he was getting married the next day or something? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's also Christmas time in that dream. Right. Right. At the one the one street that apparently exists in Dublin, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> same set, same exact every every scene in Dublin happens there. Right. Um uh, So I think it's one of the things that's interesting about this episode is how much dreams are used because Ian and I say this a lot in that like in the very beginning they kind of um used in the very first season and a little bit of the second season they use dreams a lot, but overall the show kind of moves away from using dreams as like a plot point. 
in, at all, and, or like they don't have as much meaning in the later seasons. And I think this is the last episode where dreams actually play like a huge part in the plot. Well, I mean, well, restless, yeah. <laughs> right? The restless the is different because because that's induced by their spell, I guess. But I mean, like more like her having prophetic dreams, okay? Right. Like it's that. like a constant, and it's a constant tension the show is interested in, right? Is like even in is it in this episode or the next one where? I've been watching quite a few today where Buffy has her SAT dream and Will's like, I hope that wasn't a prophecy dream. Like, it's like even in this episode when they share that dream space, it's never even clarified if that's because like Buffy has crazy dream powers or if that's like some special, whatever force also induces the snow at the end has also like given her this link so that she's aware of how badly things are progressing with Angel, right? Like, yeah, you're right. Like the extent to which Buffy's dreams are part of her power set is always like an interesting question and problem in the show. It was kind of a big part of her power set that was phased out little by little over time. And it was like vaguely brought back for season seven for the beginning of like the first three episodes, but then they like don't really address it. The show itself, season one, episode one, starts with that extended dream that Buffy has about everything that's going to happen in season one. So like not only was were dreams part of her skill set. Yeah. Like, they, they were the opening of the entire show. Right. It's like, she dreamed everything that was going to happen. And I actually really uh, liked that. Like, I wish they had continued with that. I'm yeah. glad did not. No, oh, I... I, <laughs> I think I'm a fan of it as a, as a device. I understand why it... I understand why you would retreat from it after you do a full episode that is all in a dreamscape that you would be like, well, we've gone to that well, and maybe you back off from it for a while. But what I do like about it opening here, I mean, I like, I mean, every episode, every scene in this episode is perfect, but, (laughs) but what I really like about it here is like, it immediately sets up something the episode needs to keep on the table the whole time, which is this idea of like, um, that there is something dreamy about everything that's happening. There is, we're sort of in this like liminal zone, this like space that the first evil seems to inhabit and by which it seems to attack you, which actually is why it's so effective here and why it becomes sort of ineffective in season seven because to be vulnerable to it, the characters have to be in sort of a semi-altered state for it to be effective. Otherwise it's just some like force that can't hurt you that why even bother talking to it, right? Like. So I did like that as something as an opening note. Um, it's well, also just like tight little Christmas moment, right? Is this the scene that ends with "Be of Good Cheer"? It's Christmas. Yeah, it yeah. is. And then he kills. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's so interesting that you use that word "liminal," and I think it's just like because this episode, and I did want to bring this up, and this might be the time to just bring it up, is that like in a lot of ways, this episode does not follow any kind of structure that other episodes have followed. And you kind of brought up Restless, and that's another kind of maybe sister episode that doesn't do that either. It's like, this is not an episode that, like, introduces an evil or a problem, and then it's, like, vanquished, you know, by the end of the 45 minutes. Or is nor is it an episode that's, like, clearly a, se- a season finale. It doesn't follow a rhythm that we're used to in Buffy episodes, and it almost right. feels more like a mystery or a noir kind of yes. genre- genre-ish piece. Yes. That's just like, you know, why is Angel back? We need to figure this out. What are the, what are the, what do all these dreams mean? Who's behind them? And it's really, um, it's of a, a different genre than most Buffy episodes. Right. I think you just, I, I think you just use like a key word, like by saying the word noir, you've kind of already signaled what this is because what this actually is, is an Angel episode. 
in which Buffy is a guest star, right? Like, and it has the same interests thematically and even just almost like religiously that Angel has that Buffy definitely doesn't, right? Like, yes. um, as a threat, as like a structure, there is no high school monster of the week here because the monster of the week is like the malaise of like basically a suicidal like tendency in Angel, right? That is like well beyond the scope of the kind of uh, like, oh, this monster, like the, the next episode, right? Like Gingerbread, where it's like monster of the week, metaphor for the high school experience this is like is life even worth living <laughs> is the open question this episode well, do, is addressing do you think this is kind of like a backdoor pilot for angel i mean shows do that yes. sometimes because uh, angel will premiere in a few months and i i do think this this episode was like an argument to the network that angel could have a show about redemption yeah i think that um I don't feel like it's a. I don't feel like it's a pilot in the sense of a usual thing where it's like here's the characters we might talk about and here's the like. Um, although we did kind of get that even with the end of season two, right, where we meet Whistler, right. who's obviously like this like prototype for Doyle on Angel. But uh, yeah, I do think it's a mission statement for what, um, and it sort of solidifies permanently what Angel's arc is going to be from now on, um, yeah, forever. Yeah. Which is yeah, which is like. Um, the problem of uh, the impossibility of atonement, right? That sort of is at the heart of this episode. The heart of the problem of making amends. I mean, everyone in this episode. Ooh, we said plot- the title. <laughs> 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 we did it. Um, but like every plot in this episode is about characters sort of trying to seek forgiveness, right? Yes. Like uh, Buffy sort of gives this olive branch to Faith to sort after their. Their uh, their feud in what is it called Revelations, yeah. the Gwendolyn Post episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of. She invites her to the house. Uh, Willow and Oz are figuring out how to deal with the aftermath of Lover's Walk. Right? They this is actually the episode where they reconcile, and Oz sort of gives her the that he will attempt to go forward from this. The fact that uh, she and uh, Xander were were kissing. Um, Oz forgives her as Cordelia does not forgive Xander. Right? Yeah. Um, and of course, like Angel has the terrible scene where he approaches Giles and is like, "I need your help." He's like, "Well, it's funny to hear from you." Yeah, uh, and that's sort but, of the problem, right? Angel is unforgivable. That's the that's the situation that he's dealing with. Is there like, is there any space for him to uh, make up for his crimes? Right, like the first is just relentlessly reminding him of the things he's done, um, and the decision the show sort of comes to is that no, you can't make up for it you just do your best right that's sort of Buffy's final speech uh, the, what is it strong is fighting it's hard and it's painful it's every day Ugh, uh, I'm gonna cry <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a statement like that is not the speech we expect from her that is not a right. speech of like well love will see us through or whatever whatever it's like it becomes weirdly the epiphany that he constantly comes through throughout Angel right like um, if nothing matters, all that matters is what we do every day. That's what he says to Kate in Epiphany um, on Angel. It's sort of like, uh, becomes the mission statement of the show as like a structure. Like we keep getting yeah. this position of like, someday Angel will be redeemed, someday Angel will be human, the Shanshu prophecy, and it ends up being the thing that can never come, right? Like he gives it away in the finale, um, and his last words on, in, the, in the finale are, let's go to work, right? Like you just have to keep going. Um, I still think so like I always say that Joss Whedon the reason his the reason Buffy works so well is because of all the actors I think David Boreanaz is still the weakest link acting in this episode 
Oh. Well, I yes, mean, yes. <laughs> I, I like him. I, I think that an Irish accent is always going to be a problem for him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is, like, here sort of aggravated by the mustache that he seems <laughs> to be sporting quite in a few of the flashbacks. Um, but, you know, where do you feel like he really falls down? Well, like, I think Anthony Stewart head is so great. I mean, um, yeah. But I think when they're having the conversation, Anthony Stewart head is, I don't know, I'm not, I, I didn't totally, like, I like that scene, but I didn't totally buy Angel's, like, stammering, I don't know, yeah. I felt like he too soon was, like, already, like, blubbering and slip sliding around his words. Yeah, I mean, um, he's he's got a delicate balancing act in this episode, because he has to be, well, that scene, they're literally at the site of where he, like, staged... Yeah her body and he killed her yeah. um and also she then like manifests behind him so he has to immediately be playing like unhinged too while tony head has to like not even respond to this other actress who's in the scene right yeah. again like the first evil here doesn't work the way it ever works in season seven where it's like visible to some people it's psychic but the fact that it can't touch you doesn't mean it doesn't seem real yeah. like here it's very it's very tactile sort of like sexually tactile um but i love that scene everything about it just the way he the way he strides in the other room and comes back with the crossbow <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> oh, i'm well aware i have to invite you in <laughs> come in <laughs> um and a good episode for him too i mean he's got comedy to play that bit where he's like uh, the first evil is a rebel it'll never ever be any good um there's some good jokes <laughs> You brought up Willow and Oz, and I think we can just have a cute little conversation about Willow and Oz in this episode, and mo- and then move it aside so we can get back to Angel. But I do want to get to yes, that. Yes, I was going to say, I wanted to talk about them, because I often, when I think of this show, I often forget about Oz, even though uh-huh. I had the biggest crush on Oz, and I still do, um, and he would be, like, my dream boyfriend. Um, <laughs> like, the moment with them is actually, like, really tender, and, like, I don't know. I think their their chemistry is actually really good in that scene where he tells her that he's like willing to give it a shot, and they like right. hug. It's like <laughs> a genuinely good moment between the two of them, and I just because I love Tara so much, and for me Tara and Willow were like the best couple on the show until Willow uh-huh. fucked it up. Um, like I often forget that Oz was like a good match for her at the time. Right. Right. I think that what struck me this time um, going through it is there's a problem with the Willow arc where we know what's coming in season four. Um, So it's hard sometimes to figure out. But the weird thing is, like, we know that, but the writers don't because they don't seem to have quite decided. Yeah. Sort of infamously, they hadn't decided whether it was going to be uh, um, Willow or yeah. Xander, right? Who ends up being the gay character. Um, and so when you play it here, it's like, well, then what am I supposed to do with this relationship? <laughs> um, so, like, like really, like, because you do want... Uh, and also, I like that Willow doesn't know either. Like, in the those that's, that great episode between Tara and Oz, like, she has genuine feelings for Oz and... Were they ever sexual feelings is, I think, like an open question. And it does seem to strike me as I was rewatching it today that the first time she tries to kiss him is to make Xander jealous and Oz rebuffs her. The first time they try to have sex, it's to her, basically her apologizing um, for kissing Xander and he rebuffs her. So there is like this weird 
note that their relationship keeps hitting where she has genuine affection for him, but every time it manifests physically, it's almost an apology or it's almost like about something beyond the physical, you know? Does that make sense? Well, I, I don't think know. it's a, it's, and uh, this is, so this season in general is kind of dealing with both Willow and Xander's virginity because in a few episodes, Xander is going to lose his virginity to Faith, oh, right? That's right, yes, yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things that, um, you know, that is really fucked up about the whole Xander Faith thing is that, like, Joss or whoever writes the episode, we always say Joss, but it could be whoever, just the mm-hmm. writers, um, kind of use Faith as this vehicle to bring Xander to maturity, which is just a writerly trope that's so a misogynist writer's trope that a lot of people go through is that, like, oh, if you need a character to mature, just, like, have a woman's body there and, like, they will mature or whatever. And I think that, like, this is another kind of... I'm, I I don't want to go firmly down on the side of misogyny, but I... I mean, that's usually a, a pretty easy thing to do, but I, I don't mm. want to do it right away, but I feel like um, there is a tenderness to, like, a young girl thinking that, like, offering my virginity can solve this problem or, like... Right. <laughs> there is a tenderness and an authenticity to that idea of yes. being 17 or 18 and saying right. like oh offering my body can bring us to the next place but it's also right. like a very like it's a thing that happens a lot like oh you know we can now mend we can make amends like my literal <laughs> oh, sacrifice, oh. Title again. <laughs> my literal sacrifice to make amends is my body right and yeah. it's also an interesting kind of flip from Buffy and Angel because they can't right. make that physical amend. I mean, so Willow is trying to. The, the, the like, when I was a teen and I lost my virginity to a lady, um, well, another teen. Um, wow. But, wow. like, <laughs> I remember Your being, like, way to brag. I remember being that teen and being, like, oh, my God, I have to stay with her for the rest of my life. Like, I'm an adult now. Like, I remember, like, being that dumb teen who thought, like, because I had sex, I was suddenly a 14-year-old adult, which is, like, nonsense, yeah. you know? Like, And, I mean, I, I suppose I see the point about the sort of inherent misogyny to making women into um, plot points by which you lose your virginity. I don't... I'm not sure that's how I read. Like, Faith uses Xander, right? Like, that's what happens. Is she, like, well, fun? Like, it's very... He tries to read something into it that she... She, he's the object as far as she's concerned. Um, one thing I did like in this episode is uh, the way that uh, Angelus uses misogyny as a weapon, right? Like, the way he preys on that woman at the, in the flashback um, is precisely to be like, well, who will believe you, right? When she's like, oh, yes. high up. Um, <laughs> they make him a dick in so many different ways, and I think that that's a very consistent one for Angelus is to sort of to use the architecture of spaces against the person, um, because he is like a, he's a pig. He's a misogynist in the worst of ways, uh, and that seems like such, such a great encapsulation of that. And the way that the the first then when it inhabits that um, maid's body again towards the end echoes his line directly back to him, right? Of like, uh, oh, what is the line? I can't remember, but uh, just like to word for word bring back his past is so great. I just love the way it's built this episode. <laughs> um, well. So okay, so with with Oz and Willow, I mm. I often find like myself very much like checking out watching them because I do agree with you, Anthony. Like they the writers didn't know, even though like Young Willow would have like kind of known, right? Um, but 
I don't know. Like, this was one of the few moments where I was, like, totally buying them loving each other. Uh-huh. So I don't uh-huh. know. I, I think I agree with you also that I don't know... Well, I don't want to f- go too far afield, but, like, I also think that this question becomes very active in Gingerbread. Um, because Gingerbread, one of the things it's dealing with is sort of... Um, I mean, there's a lot of metaphors stacked on top of each other there, but one of them is clearly, like, a, a queer metaphor, like a coming out. Right. The reason Willow never has a coming out episode to her parents is because Gingerbread is basically that episode, right? That's like true. She literally has a coming out moment to her mom where she's like, oh, fill me with your naughty evil Satan, <laughs> right? Like, it, it spirals out of control very quickly, but uh, subtending all of that, like Michael the warlock is clearly, like, this queer yeah. character. Yeah. Um, He's the guy I would have had a crush on in high school. <laughs> he's very beautiful, yeah. uh, and that <laughs> lipstick is really nice. And he's wearing a Paradise Lost t-shirt, which I really, really like and wish I owned. And I'm um, pretty sure he's a member of Rilo Kylie. I think that's... Is he really? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> like the Anyway, back to amends. <laughs> <laughs> the reason Angel goes to Giles is because he wants to know why he's back. That's what this all is about. Right. And eventually the group kind of comes together on Christmas Eve to do the research into that. Yes. And I'm always love a research of, montage. <laughs> oh my god, love a research montage, but I'm kind of surprised that Xander participates. I feel like it's a little like I feel like maybe there was room for a scene that could have that was maybe cut or something there where, you know, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that we're deep deeply critical of Xander and he's, I have noticed he's, he's often <laughs> a dick and I'm surprised there wasn't a scene where he's like I'm not going to do research for this. Right. Angel killed everyone you love. There was never like, like a, there should, there feels like there needed to have been like a, just like one beat of it being like, maybe like facial recognition of him like being like, oh, I'm being a dick or like something. Yeah. But he like comes out of Giles's office and is like, great research mode. Um, after yeah. Just like, well, he says, what is it? Like, where do we start? And it's yeah. sort of, it is a silent. I do think though that, um, this is like, I'm going to say the title again. This is his like amends for, <laughs> <laughs> for being the one that caught them, right? That's what um, the the Gwendolyn Post, he's the one who outs everybody. There's that terrible fight in the library. Um, so that. trying to help, trying to help with that angel stuff here, and even just the very actually quite sweet scene where he goes to Willie with uh, with Buffy and like tries yeah. to do a shakedown on Willie, and he's like, oh, you were very intimidating. Like it's sort of, it's cute, <laughs> but it gets us back to... Um, to that sort of baseline where he and Buffy are, are friends again. That's in a way that the previous episode, I was just listening to you guys talk about The Wish, um, in the way that the previous episode kind of paves over just by its structure. You yeah. guys were talking about that scene, the opening scene where they're slaying a monster in daylight and then they're sort of just having a picnic or whatever. And then <laughs> yeah. the goofy scene at the end where they're just like friends. Like That's where the show's trying to get back to and that's sort of the thing The Wish stages. Like, well, what if she didn't have these people? Um, so, I mean, it's a Christmas episode, so they have to be as lovey-dovey as possible, but... Uh, I even, I, like... you guys hate Xander. Like, I get it, in a way, but... Like, the bit that always... When I really start crying at the end of this episode is when he's, like, in his tent, alone, mm. in the snow. Like, that really gets to me. I mean, I'm already crying, so it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> everything is making me crying, so I'm just, like, crying for the last ten minutes. Doesn't matter. Right. Um, right. I mean, Plus, I think... Sick, you know. I don't hate... Xander as much, only because I always say that I love him for his ties to Buffy and Willow, mm-hmm. who I love. And, like, like... I see. And Xander is... So you sort of you sort of realize the exact anxiety Xander has, right? That he's sort of completely extraneous. That he's sort of... He's just, like, this appendix that nobody needs, well, that doesn't need 
to be there. I mean, I think he's important for their friendship. I think Xander becomes more tolerable over time, but that, like, he is still very much a teenage straight male at the beginning. He's a teenage heterosexual male. Like, he's trash. And, like, you know, so he's just, like, written really terribly at the beginning, and he is the catalyst for so much, like, he throws so much hate towards Buffy, and Buffy just continually saves his life. And it's, like, really, like, ungrateful. But I, I, um... I do think he gets better, but I like I do feel bad for him that he has a bad family life, but I think you can hold both things. It's like knowing that he's a trash person but feeling bad that he's sleeping out in the snow. Yeah. Like, those things are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> but um, I think that that reminds me of something that we didn't talk about. So for all of our listeners out there, we've already recorded the episode about Helpless in the Zeppo. That's some behind-the-scenes information. And it confuses but, Nana Ian all the time whenever we do an episode <laughs> out of order. But um, I didn't. we didn't talk about this during the Zeppo, but like... I think as queer people, we all remember those moments when we were younger, when we really did try to, like, heterosexify ourselves to fit in. And Xander's whole, like, buying a car thing is such a queer thing to do to come off straight. (laughs) Right. Well, we all have stories about what we did to, like, appear straight. And Xander's car is, like, really, really bad. Like, it's one of those... I mean, there's a lot of Xander that is sort of this, like, drag of being, like, his Halloween costume where he's, like, a soldier. Like, there's a lot of him sort of overcompensating. I mean, I also had a huge crush on Xander as a kid. <laughs> so my sort of defensiveness about him is dealing with that, I think. But uh, we, ha- I think we have to get back because we sure. spent a lot of time on someone who's not even a big part of this episode. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, okay. um, so let's talk about introducing the first into Buffy canon. I mean... Yes. Yeah. Uh, do you got, do Anthony, you guys... Anthony, this is one of your favorite episodes. Like, what do you yes. think about using this episode to introduce the first? Well, this is again, I mean, it's sort of weird to me because the first is sort of, um, I have a lot of directions I think about this, but the first is for me in a lot of ways, very clearly an angel villain in a way that is not a Buffy villain. Um, and I, I guess I have to unpack that. First of all, I think that there's a lot of the angel story um, that, uh, structurally deals with his like Catholicism in a weird way. We like and his like existential problems. Like we see him reading La Nause in a previous episode. He is sort of an existentialist in a weird way that Buffy is not. Um, and so the first to me feels at least here feels like a first pass at uh, Wolfram and Hart. It feels like um, because it, it's very specifically not a satanic evil. It sort of wears the trappings of satanic evil, but it says very specifically that it's beyond sin, beyond death. It's in every person. There's a weird way, and I think actually its flaws as a villain are sort of apparent here already. Because oh yeah, the, yeah. Because the way the first, the way the first succeeds is for things to just go on the way they go on, right? It's this sort of version of evil as incredibly banal as incredibly mundane, just like, just to let things go on as they are, sort of the scene in, um, the scene in Angel where, uh, Holland Manners, he's dead, but that doesn't stop his contract from going on with Wolfram and Hart. He takes Angel to the main office of, uh, Evil, Evil Incorporated, right? And the elevator opens, and it's not some terrible hell dimension, it's our world, right? Um, and that's sort of the thing that the first Evil thrives on, the sort of metaphor that's threaded through the whole episode is of the sun right like the sun just needs to come up and it will destroy angel and the miracle is actually the interruption in the regular system um 
But I, I'm fascinated by the first evil, even insofar as it has these terrible limitations, because it becomes obvious, like, well, then what would its plan even be? What does it gain? Like, what does it want? I think this is a question that season seven never quite figures out how to deal with, right? Um, but I do think it's at its most effective here, because it is sort of functioning as this, like, psychic threat, rather than just, like, this ghost that doesn't shut up, that might, like, I hate the thread in season seven, where it's like, is Giles the first evil, or isn't he? And it's just like, if someone just fell against him, it would prove that he wasn't. Like, I hate that. It's like, it should be a hallucination, I think. Right. He, or I mean, I don't want to say he, the first, first of all, the, the explanation for the first kind of reminds me of how they explain Mana and the craft when they're like, if God and the devil were playing on a football field, oh, Mana would when Mana would be the field itself or whatever. <laughs> um, That's a good comparison, oh, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, no, it's def- it reminds me of that where it's like, this is beyond Christianity and it's beyond right. your conceptions of good and evil, which I also think is why they put it in a Christmas episode. I feel like there's right. a total like, <laughs> You know, it Christ might be born to save you all, but the the first is gonna he, is here like fuck shit up. Like I yeah. feel like it's a very <laughs> a comment on Christianity and the limits of Christianity, especially in the in Buffy's world. Like there really yes. is, like they talk about heaven and hell. But I was talking about this with Amy, I think, on another episode, in that like I think for Joss, like heaven and hell are just oh no, we were tweeting about it. Like for Joss, heaven and hell are just other worlds. The way there's a world without shrimp, yeah. it's just like right. a plane of existence and. Um, obviously, and it's sort of the question that the show is completely right. Like, there's that moment in conversations with dead people where, um, what's his name? Yes. Has, he's like the newborn vampire, and he's like, he says something about God, whose works he rejects. He's like, any word on that? And Buffy's like, jury's still out, right? Yeah. Like, there is no. And I think that also points out the problem of making the first a Buffy villain, right? Like, as soon as she sees him, she has his number. Well, I keep saying him too. Part of it yeah. is because the first is like this manifestation of like patriarchal evil too, but. Um, uh, Anyway, there's that scene, and she's like, I get it, you're evil, do we have to chat about it all day, right? <laughs> Where, yeah. Which is so good. Angel, that's such an interesting question, that's like, all his anxieties turn, am I a righteous man, is the question he asks Buffy at the end of the episode, right? Like, his problem isn't even the demon, it's the man that he is. Whereas Buffy, Buffy always kind of knows that she's a good person. She never actually has any existential, like uncertainty about that the problem is that she has trouble relating to people but yeah. as a force she always knows she's a good person that's one of the reasons one of the backdoor reasons they're they're able to get the first into season seven is because it tortures spike just like it was torturing angel yeah right um it right. needs someone with centuries of history to torture like it could not do that to buffy in exactly. the same way she's been a- around for 20 years 23 years by the time it's season seven you know she does not have right. the centuries of doing evil the way that both angel and um spike have right which is why the show has to course correct and like turn the first ultimately into just this kind of force that is controlling a much more useful and like yeah. um elemental buffy villain which is like caleb right like this ultimate uh is that his name right yeah, the yeah. Nathan caleb yeah and, and the uber vams yeah right whereas i do like but I, the, what i do like about its appearance in season three is that um it is part of this like series of villains the season gives you who are like authority figures, um, particularly male authority figures, but not necessarily. Like Gwendolyn Post is another one where it's like so much of season three is about Buffy realizing that the people in charge are actually perfectly capable of being malevolent, perfectly capable of not having her best interest at heart, perfectly capable of being casually cruel to each other right like band candy the mayor is the ultimate sort of manifestation of that right like um the system is set against you 
And insofar as that's what the first sort of subtends in that crazy monologue it gives, I think it is interesting. But um, but yes, I, I feel like the first is ultimately like a first draft of Wolfram and Hart, which I do think is even in their own sort of nebulous banality is sort of the point, right? Like, yeah, good evil has no personality is like an old like Augustinian not idea that weirdly Angel keeps picking up. Um, it's only in it's only in good and standing against it you you ultimately manifest anything interesting. So yeah, let's talk about this um, final scene also. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, there's. Do you guys cry when you rewatch? Yes. I did. No, but I don't. <laughs> But I don't really cry to Buffy anymore. I kind of like, ha- like I don't know why. Okay, so wait, I need to go on my spiel. Um, there are very so I had a really terrible summer, um, and Buffy was always like my comfort go to, um, and I watched a lot of like Gingerbread was an episode I went to a lot just because like for me that's such a fun throwaway episode that's not heavy, right, right. you know. But You're speaking of evil parents, right? <laughs> right. Well, you know what I mean, and like. But there are a few episodes where, like, I would literally just watch a monologue or, like, one scene from to, like, ugly mm. cry. And mm. this actually was one of them. But, like, I'm this was normally an episode I skipped. And watching it now, I think it's aged really well. I told Anthony he was going to need to, like, convince me this episode was great. He didn't need to convince me after I watched it today. I was, like, <laughs> sobbing in my bedroom. And I'm, like, God damn it. This monologue is really, like, her whole thing to him is so good and like i'm already crying because that's so good and then the like snow happening is so like cheesy sentimental but it works so well that i'm like crying (laughs) the moment she's like talking to him and she's like fighting is strong it's hard it's like every what we do every day it's painful it's every day but it's what we have to do yeah i'm not gonna lie to the two of you when i had to move (laughs) out of new york a friend of mine sent me that gif because I was really miserable. I had the worst summer, um, you know, break up a death in my family, having to move back home. And my friend sent that to me and it made me ball in the moving truck because I was like, fuck. Like, and so I relate that speech. Like, I think that's almost as good as Whistler's voiceover when she's running through the hall in slow motion. Like I, I can equate those two. And then I know we were trashing season seven. I don't hate season seven. I don't love it, oh, but I, I don't, don't hate it. Trash. I'm not. I'm not trashing season seven. And uh, I, yeah, I, I don't trash think... season seven either. Okay, fair. Well, and I think her "it's gonna choke on me" speech is really good. Like for me, those yes. are three things <laughs> I revisited often that I wouldn't watch the whole episode, but I would just put on those scenes and like right. I'd be like, "Give me your strength, Buffy. Like, give it to me." <laughs> um, and they're versions of each other too, right? Yes. It's the sort of like. Um, it's the lesson she learns in season six, weirdly in reverse of Angel here. Like, Angel has come back from hell and is like, well, why am I back? She comes back from heaven and asks the same question. Right. But they both have to learn that you keep going, right? Like, you keep struggling, you keep doing it because that's all you can do. Even if there's no larger purpose, if there's no reason you're back from wherever you came from, you still have to do the work, right? That's what Angel ends up being about and that's what this show ends up being about in such fundamental ways that I really do feel like that exchange is so key to reading both these shows' projects. Um, And yeah, I cry like a baby every time. And you know, I mean, Sarah Michelle Gellar, I mean, Matthew and I say this all the time, but Jesus Christ, her acting is so good on that scene Mm -hmm. and like the pain on her fucking face when she's Mm -hmm. telling him that 
is just, ugh, I love it. It's so good. It's so perfect. Oh, also, the friend that sent it to me was one of our former guests. We had him on season two by uh-huh. Paul. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't know. I think her, it's a combination of everything going on. And then, the, for me, the snow just overloads it for me. So I'm just like, well, now I'm not going to stop oh. crying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh yeah. I love the snow. Um, I love the snow precisely because it's so, it is literally never explained. It's like the one yeah moment of grace real grace that the series ever has where it's just like something comes in from outside like when she says the jury's still out about god or whatever whatever's out there for once interrupts the system and saves angel and says like there is something and it's just like of course it's sentimental of course it's treacly of course it's like too much but that's what i love about it is sort of like for once this miracle intercedes Matthew, what do you think about that end? <laughs> um, it's okay. <laughs> Wait, we are breaking up. <laughs> I really, I am not a fan of when I, so as much as Buffy is a sentimental show and I've cried to it a million times, like I said, I really don't cry to Buffy anymore. Maybe when I'm in like the mood and I, it's almost like when you're in the mood and, well, I wouldn't do this when you're in a certain mood and you listen to Adele to cry, like you need to push yourself to do that. <laughs> there are some scenes, like maybe the end of Becoming, that can really get me there. Um, but, like, casually, I really don't cry. But I'm also just, like, an, an emotionless husk. Like, I <laughs> am rewatching Will and Grace, and I think it's funny, but I don't laugh. Like, I don't laugh when I watch comedies. I just, like, think <laughs> well, they're that, pleasant. I think of Will and Grace more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but also, I love that, Matthew. I think it's funny, but I don't laugh. Like, oh, this is funny. Like, yeah, like, I I just so stoically <laughs> sit there, and I'm like, oh, this is a pleasant situation of comedy. <laughs> um, so, no, I do not cry to the end of amends. I think it's, like, I do love the metaphor on a writer level of, like, or just, like, the idea of... It is literally, like, a deus ex machina yeah, ending. Yeah, yeah. And I do love that use of the device, because it's really not one that comes out of Buffy Buffy... You know, we're talking a lot about the nature of Buffy. Buffy is a pragmatist, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a pragmatic show uh-huh. in, yes. which they, in which they must do things to earn a good ending, and they must strategize and come together and sometimes all, fo- you know, magically go into Buffy's body to defeat a machine. Like, right. they have to find <laughs> the solution, and for the solution to come out of nowhere is very poetic. Right. Um... But I, I, I tend to think that the ending monologue that Buffy gives is a little too, like, when Joss was re- writing it, he was, like, salivating over it. It was like, damn, this is such a good monologue. And I'm not always a fan of writing like that, like, writing that thinks that it's brilliant. I also think that, like, the one thing I like about the monologue is that it almost, it's a, it, there's a double speaker, like, a double meaning to it, where, like, Buffy is also talking about her own her own need to fight. Like, she yes. is speaking yeah. to Angel from experience because they haven't spoken about the fact that she is fighting every day not being with him. So there uh, is goodness true. to it, but I feel it's, it's a little bit too much, like, doing a triple axel and, like, throwing your hands up in the air after, for me, for the writer. The well, thing. it just... Actually, one of the cool things that I've literally never noticed until you guys made me watch these two episodes back-to-back... <laughs> and sort of think about them as a diptych is like weirdly, I I think you're exactly right that um, this speech is to herself because Angel actually echoes it in the next episode in Gingerbread. Yeah. Um, And I've never, never noticed it before because of course 
it's bar- buried in it is the moment that she realizes the kids don't have parents. So yeah. it kind of disappears. But he says it back. He says, I wrote it down. It's important that we keep fighting. I learned that from you. Uh, we never win. We never will. That's not why we fight. We do it um, because there's things worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. And, like, again, that becomes, like, a weird key thing for him. Like, why? I think why we fight is, like, the title of, like, one of the Angel episodes, actually. Um, so, yeah, I guess you're right. It's sort of, like, it's harsh, it's terrible, but it's because she's speaking to herself, too, in a weird way. I mean, honestly, literally every time you have quoted it, Anthony, I've been like, ugh, like, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, like, so, like, like I said, I was really depressed this summer, and, like, I found that, like, I cried once just, like, see, like I said, Paul sent me that gif and I cried. Like, just, like, I came across it on Tumblr and was like, I need to save this to my computer. Like, I, like, saved a gif set of her giving that speech. I made a gif of it today. I teared up making the gif. Like, Jesus. I think <laughs> for, like, someone who's, like, depressed or whatever, like, I think it is it is a really good, like, it's like, shit sucks. And, like, I don't know. When you're That's going why... through hell, keep going. Yeah. yeah. Like, could. <laughs> wait, sure. so yeah. the, the one thing I wanted to say about Faith. Um, they, right. Faith think... is, wait, she's not in amends, is she? No, uh, she, oh, yeah, she is. She's, yeah, of course. She, she, comes, comes, she for... comes to Christmas. Christmas. That's right. Oh, sweetheart. And, that, she... and it's also that really, like, it's the scene where, like, you know, the, she comes for Christmas and Buffy goes upstairs and Angel is waiting behind her door really creepily. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, oh, and she brought gifts for Joyce, and she keeps saying they're crappy. crappy. Yeah. Oh, oh. Um, yeah. I think they do a weird thing with Faith this season, which I have never really noticed until doing this podcast. It's kind of the same way they do with Angel in season two, where, like, they're actually only officially dating for, like, a few episodes, and then, like, he turns evil. Um, right. On this show, they were actually only really friends for, like, three episodes. And then Revelations happens, and her and Faith kind of break up. And then this is them, like, getting back together, almost. Right, right, yeah. But then, like, and she... she kills someone in, like, what, three episodes from that? Like, And she's in very few between yeah. now and then, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah she, like, she has that weird moment. I Rewatching, it's I become clearer to me that, like, the Gwendolyn post episode is more important than I thought. Yes. Um, and that's the moment where she sort of has that moment. Where she's she has that exchange where she's like, "Well, I guess I'm not one of Buffy's friends." And Buffy won't talk to her about Angel, and actually, weirdly, really hurts her feelings. Yeah. And that's the moment where she like decides she's going to kill Angel. That's the thing that they're fighting about that they're making peace about in this episode. Yeah. But it's like this weird like she's trying to find a way to trust Buffy, and she, Buffy barely even notices how much she's hurt her in this season, I think. Yeah. Well, I don't think Buffy ever think, actually liked her. Oh, I think she does. I think that... I And I also disagree with your characterization of her and Buffy and whether they were friends and then didn't become friends. I just don't think Buffy and Faith were ever that close in general. And what happens is that, like, Buff, Faith exists on the outskirts of the Scoobies, and that actually plays into this, like, psychological or psych- her into her psyche and, like, her sense of self. Because the whole point of being the Slayer is being, like, the one in all the world. And, like, Faith never has had that experience. And so she, I think for Faith, the sh- her struggle in the entire season and in the whole show is, am I a Slayer of two or am I Slayer number two? Right. You yeah. know? 
it's like, am I Mario and Luigi or am I like Luigi? And you know, it's like, so a lot of what happens. Yeah. And a lot of what happens. Or Wario, I guess is what you Or even worse, like Waluigi. A copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah. And so I think it's more that like over time, Faith just like consistently feels outside of the group. And like Buffy does have a few genuine times where she tries to reach out to her mm-hmm. but um i mean that's all, all saying is like yeah she's not in the opening episodes as much as people remember her and it's because elijah dushku kind of has a charisma and like an over like just like a, an, an electricity about her when she's on screen yeah. on this show that you think you remember her more than you do yes totally. um, but, mm-hmm. but i that it's um i don't know i mean i, I did I, notice this episode that i've never noticed before and it's like a nice note is that um, Joyce is the one who says she should be invited over for Christmas. Yeah. Uh, and then when when Buffy does invite her later, Faith fully says, like, oh, this was your mom's idea. And Buffy pretends it wasn't. But I do think it's a nice note for Joyce. Yeah. Who's, like, one of my favorite characters <laughs> that she was thinking <laughs> of poor Faith out there. <laughs> so Gingerbread um, has, like, it's weird because Gingerbread is so not heavy, but it has a kind of heavy opening kind of. Um, oh, so, what's the opening? I totally forget. Well, because, well, I mean, the opening is Joyce oh, joining yeah. her. Um, and they have that funny scene where she's like, that's Mr. Blah 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 from the bank. Um, Mr. Sanders. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but then Joyce finds the, like, dead kids. Um, right. And, you know, watching the episode this time around, I have to say, I was like, you know, why are they making such a big deal? There's no way children weren't murdered before in Sunnydale. Like, uh-huh. Well, then, it's also... Of like a major threat again like that's a threat in season three right is like um systems of people preying on children right that's what lurconis lurconis yeah, yeah. wants to feed eat babies right that's why they yeah. turn in that's why band candy even happens it's sort of like things are coming for your kids is a is a thread and like technically well, they're kind of still kids well that's why i think and we mentioned this in band candy but i think it's a really good obviously now that we're talking about gingerbread it's time to bring it up, and that band candy and gingerbread kind of work on opposite, they're opposites of each other. Yeah, um, see that. And, but, and they're mirror images of each other, and that and they're actually low-key kind of brilliant like that. Um, yeah. Obviously, so band candy goes from a very humorous episode to one that gets really serious really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and band candy is one that is serious throughout. It's going with the death of children and then basically proto-fascism and totalitarianism. The and then ginger, like gingerbread you mean gingerbread yeah and oh. then so gingerbread so it's the opposite so whereas band candy was humorous and serious gingerbread is super serious and it's about all those things and then but you end up at a place where it's super yeah. farcical or like you know <laughs> right. it's super farcical and then it just ends on that note of like the stake through the neck and Buffy being like, did I get it? Did I get did it? Did I get so, it? And then Xander and Oz fall through the ceiling. We're here to save you. <laughs> I think, I think this end is so fucking like hilariously perfect. Like Sarah's delivery of, did I get it? Did I get it? Right. And like Giles and Cordelia being the ones that get there first to save them. Like, I don't know. Right. I love, I love this. And episode. a spell in German. We never get German spells. Yeah, that's true. Everything <laughs> I love that. I think that is Band Candy also a Jane Espenson episode because that would make sense that they seem so similar structurally that they have yes, that same. You can hear almost that proto. I mean, she went on to work on Gilmore Girls, right? So you can hear that kind of Gilmore Girlsy speech happening here. Um, oh, did she? I didn't that, know that. Did, 
Yeah, she worked on a few hmm. uh, after right after Buffy ended. Um, yeah, I love th- I love this episode in a way that I didn't remember loving it actually. <laughs> it's, so there's it's, a lot of great yeah I mean there's a lot of great stuff that is for a one off and and we don't we've had battles about what it means in the Buffy world to be a one off because there there really is not a show that does as many one offs as other uh, shows do. Um, this encapsulates I think a lot of the themes of season three in a one off episode like they are dealing with this one specific demon who works via you know, like making fear and like in sowing fear in a town right but um you're absolutely like you were talking before like all of season three is about buffy butting up against authority and whereas band candy was what happens when authority goes out the window and like is just checked out right this one is about like what happens when they're hyper involved in your life and thinks that everything that you're doing is you know basically communing with satan right and it opens with this gesture like it's it opens with joyce the reason joyce is there is she's like well i'm trying to be more open-minded i want to see what your life is like she's trying to learn about buffy's lifestyle right Right. (laughs) it immediately becomes this attempt to it's weird how i didn't remember it being so like xander literally says it's nazi germany and i have playboys in my locker right like it (laughs) goes to as much as i was talking earlier about it being this kind of like coming out metaphor it also has um this like heavy interest in censorship and in like um yeah you said totalitarianism that's exactly what it does like if if you sat and watched this for the first time it's supposed to be shocking that willow is involved in the spell uh and then it's supposed to be shocking again that this the kids don't exist right like there's two twists in this episode yeah (laughs) totally because it it wants you to think that willow might be doing something bad and then I think, and the, the, the brilliant part, though, because this is an episode that does, in its seriousness, go into a place of horror films mm-hmm, in, a, yeah. in the horror genre. Um, the moment where the kids are talking to Joyce in her kitchen alone for the first time <laughs> is actually terrifying. It's, yes. I, think, I think it's supposed to be like The Shining. It's supposed to be like these two twins that no one else can see that are having her go crazy. You know, it's... Right. It, 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 it's really invoking like the horror trope of like the dead kid that's talking to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dead people are talking to you, mom. Do the math, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and yet it still gets to a point by the end of the episode where Giles can be like, "We have to save Buffy from Hansel and Gretel," right? Like right. it can play a complete, which is what Buffy as a show does so well. Is like it can play a complete range from like deathly serious. I think I think Jane Espenson wrote um, Earshot too. Where you can like literally smash yep. cut from like Jonathan like suicidally crying his eyes out to a woman pouring rat poison into the lunch, and it's like <laughs> those two images exist within two minutes of each other, and it's just. Like <laughs> um, um, Anthony, so, was it you that told me that one of did one of you tell me this, or did someone else that in Gingerbread, the kid, which I just looked up to make sure I was right before I said it, the kid is like the gay son in Desperate Housewives. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know what? Actually, I didn't know that either. That might have been Rob who listens to our podcast that told me. I don't remember. Someone told me that. But yeah. That's, that's really cool. I like that, though. That fact. means, like, there's... Um, that adds a nice little dimension. Like, I feel like I'm not re- reaching, right? Like, Joyce literally says, like, I wanted a happy, normal daughter and I got a slayer. Like, the metaphor here is 
the metaphor from the end of season two is back, right? Yes. Like Slayer as gay yeah. has sort of resurfaced again in a way I kind of forgot that it did. I didn't really remember that it, that happens again. Well, there's uh, definitely like, I mean, when we're talking about totalitarianism and um, just for everyone who's listening, I've been reading Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. Oh, so it's like very reading. weird. <laughs> um, reading it. So it's like, okay. Flex that sexy brain, Matthew. What happens <laughs> is, right, like, they go for all these ideologies first. Like, so they're very anti-witch. They're very anti-sex. Like, he talks about having the playboys, right? Right. And, like, they know that by being anti-witch, it's also going to be all of these th- other... There's going to be interpolated with that all of these other things that they're going to be against. And, like, it turns from being anti-witch to, like, oh, young girls are dirty. Like, g- girls are bad. Girls are dirty. Like, we yeah. have to kill mm-hmm. them. Kill the bad girls. Yeah, that's right. Kill the bad girls. So it's it it really does, in its own way, seriously show the escalation from like witchcraft is an evil that we have to like we have to protect little kids to right. we have to kill young girls. It shows you the ins- like this insidious slippery slopiness of totalitarianism in the episode. Kind of. Yeah, and what's neat is it <laughs> sets it up. Um, like when Joyce first starts talking we're actually quite convinced, right? When she says, like, silence is this town's disease. Oh, yeah. But it's also true, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's, like, oddly true, and it's annoying because you're like, oh, she's giving this shitty speech, but, like, that one part is true, like... And she scores some serious points where she's like, well, Buffy, are you really... I mean, it's undercut entirely. We've just done an episode where we literally saw how much good Buffy is doing um, the wish, right? And then, like, if Buffy's not there, this town literally goes to hell, like, very quickly. But Joyce's point um, is very convincing. Like, Buffy has no... She's a purely reactive force, right? Like, she never actually... She's always responding to something. She's never, like, changing the world. Uh, She's just stopping an apocalypse, but um, let me let me say this. I think that the the end of season seven yes. is Buffy making good on that promise because yeah. she pro- at pre- proactively makes more slayers. And she's oh. well, and she says in her speech in season seven, "I'm not ready. They're not ready." And it's like, oh yeah, and I want to fist punch the air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so she it kind of does go back to that idea, and she. Um, she so yeah, the, the series kind of makes good on that. Um. Also, Amy is is shows up like for her what yes. second no yeah. third appearance right? It might be her uh, second. Yeah, because it's it's the witch in the in the first se- yeah. season, and then in the second one is Bewitched, Bother, Bewildered, oh, you're right. and she yeah. uses the exact same spell on herself that she tried she used on Buffy to turn her into a rat, right? Yeah. The yeah. Hecate work by will before they let the other thing. Is it this episode? I know I just watched this episode like forty five minutes ago, <laughs> but is it this episode or is there another one where someone says enough with the Hecate? <laughs> it's another one, right? I don't. Now I'm gonna Google I think it's that. Like in season five oh. or six, where someone keeps doing the heck, like keeps saying the Hecate thing, and they stop them, and they're like, "Okay, enough with the Hecate." <laughs> I, maybe I made it up, but I you know, really that, feel like it exists somewhere in the Buffy. That's somewhere, room. yeah. Um, but Amy here, like, when she finally comes back for good, is sort of is again this like figure of like liminal queerness, right? Like it becomes. Um, willow's like great rebellion is to bring amy back and then she goes nuts right and like has that sort of uncontrolled party um so yeah that like and like they when they when they're the kids are harassing michael it's like people like you right like and we all know what that means right when he's shaking against the locker um once so i have two things i want to say I think that this is one of joyce's best hair episodes yes (laughs) 
her hair looks flawless in this episode. Eo five hot oiled to, to the gods. Yeah, <laughs> like, and it has it has height and volume, and it just <laughs> it just looks amazing. It's it's got this like perfect ba- uh, balance of like church mominess, but like <laughs> sexiness too. I was thinking about this with I don't know if I'm just getting older. But I was thinking about how great Gwendolyn Post looks in Revelations, too. It's like the, the older women on the show are really well-styled. Yeah. I really feel like if Gwendolyn Post, had, and we talked about this a little bit on the Revelations episode, if she had stayed around um, for a few more episodes, it would have been nice. But also she would have already, she would have been like a low-key queer icon yes. if, she had, if she had stayed around for like half a season. Yeah, I was already thinking about like, well, could I make this a Halloween costume? Like a glove, <laughs> the pencil skirt, the little cardi, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God, get- we didn't yeah. get a good, like, good anti-Giles, really. I mean, the mayor is kind of that, but it would have been nice to have, like, an evil watcher run for a while. Yeah. Gwendolyn Post for, like, four episodes would have been great. That yeah, right. Been like, if they had done a whole episode where she was good and then she slowly unveils herself to be, like, working for Lagos or, or you know, like, whatever. Yeah. Was, like, that would have been such a nice... And we just could have gotten more fierceness from her. The way she wore that sweater shawl. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. As she bashes him in the head. Yeah. I mean, I I think Gwendolyn Post and um, this might be unpopular, Kathy from season four. I wish our two characters Kathy. had stayed around longer and the reveal happened in like another episode. Also, I always <laughs> forget how long it takes Wesley to come into it. Like every episode, like every episode I've been rewatching for the podcast, I keep being like, wait, when does Wesley come in? But he doesn't come in until the, I think, Bad Girls, right? Like, when she kills... Which also Um, leads to my theory of Alison Hannigan totally said, I will only do the reunion if my husband can come. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's talk about... I mean, you were talking, Anthony, about how it's hard to read, to look at Willow without knowing what we know about the future. I think it's very hard to watch Gingerbread without bringing our current world into it and looking at it yes. through like the eyes of Trump and like yeah. mob mentality and mob politics and how quickly things can go bad. Yeah, yeah. And um I mean that this whole season does that too. It's just like like I said, like the mayor is such a great villain for Buffy because it's about it's about an evil that isn't coming from below but coming at you from above. Like how much are you stuck in systems that are designed to... I mean, Helpless is the next episode, right? Yeah. Right. Where, like, the Watcher's Council sort of descends on Buffy and it visits this, like, incredibly sadistic test. Um, and that's what this episode is, too. It's like, well... And it's quite c- compelling about it, right? Like, Joyce... We buy Joyce for a little while until suddenly, like, the right. sadism and the monstrosity behind it sort of surface when those kids well, start showing up. <laughs> that, I think that's the real-world like connection to it is that like it's like when certain people would say that they're for family values and Joyce is basically running on like a family values platform <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah. it's actually like anti-sex anti-queer anti all these things and it's really like totalitarianism with a smile on its face saying that yeah. you want to protect young kids from dirty girls yeah it's um and it doesn't go away like uh call me by your name the movie is coming out um and as soon as that starts as soon as the trailers were dropping, Vulture had to lock its comment section because the relationship is about a 24-year-old and a 17-year-old, and it becomes like, oh, but the kids are in danger. We've made right. kids. And, of course, that always, always, always becomes the vector whereby this um, anti-gay messaging is allowed to blossom. The same thing is happening in Australia right now, right? Like, It's nice to see Buffy like as a character be like, 
Well, a locker is private. You have no business in there. It's nice to see her stand up for Michael. It's like her one... She has... It's like before season four, we have a nice moment of Buffy as queer ally, right? Where she's just like... (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, it's so interesting. That scene is actually, to me, really interesting because it's the first time that you get a sense that people in the school know that Buffy is strong as fuck and will fuck them up. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they, they don't really spell that out on the show that much. But when she stands between Michael oh, and the so like good. they're kind of like, oh, okay, we don't mess with Michael now. Uh, but, speaking of characters I would have liked to recur, Michael would have been a nice... I know, it's weird that he... I always think that... Because he, he could have been with Xander. Every time there's a man... <laughs> every time I want Larry to be with Xander, I want Larry, Xander, and Michael to be in a thruple. <laughs> That's what should have happened in season four. I think there's a no- one of the novelizations. Oh no, my dorkiness has been revealed. I've read the novels. I think Michael is a character in one of them. Um, I've read a lot. Yeah. I've read a lot of the novels. Wait, I once went on vacation, <laughs> and I forgot. It was like when I lived in New York. I was because uh, I'm this gay guy who goes on vacation with his parents. Me and my boyfriend at the time. This was like seven years ago. We're going on vacation with my parents, and I was like, "Fuck! I forgot my two books." So what I did was I went through and found all my old Buffy novels, and literally that was what I read on vacation because I was like, I don't oh. have anything to read, and all my books here were mostly books I had read at my parents' house, so I was like, let me go, there's got to be some books I haven't read, and there was just, I brought five Buffy novels. Oh, do you remember which ones were your favorites? Is this too far afield? Um, <laughs> no, this is great. There was a trilogy <laughs> called The Unseen that was really good. I want to say one of them might have just been called Queen of the Slayers. That one was pretty good, which was like oh. a continuation of after season seven. Yeah, I've read a lot of them too. Don't worry, Anthony. <laughs> One concept I remember from the novels that never the show never did that was pretty cool was the idea of a previous Slayer who is now a vampire. Um, I thought that was great. That would have been a great villain He's, to bring onto the show. When I, I had never read the novelizations, though I did read a novelization of season seven, which was just like someone wrote out season seven oh, yes. in a book. In a I book. own that. <laughs> I own that too. And there's so many typos in it. I was like, someone hire me. This book has so many typos. I remember um, reading the Anya scene and crying, the scene where she dies, because it gives you like her yeah. thoughts. I feel like that um, would work well as a novel. Um, you could solve, like, I, again, I don't want to, I'm not interested in slamming really any of this project, but, like, as a pacing situation, I feel like a novel would let you work out some things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the the thing I always bring up instead of novelizations is that I played the Buffy video games. Yes. And they're, and they're basically based on, like, lost episode arcs that, like, could have been what happened, but didn't. Right. What was the, what was the one with the first evil? Uh, Chaos oh. Bleeds. Yeah. <laughs> And it was like a bunch of alternate realities. Yes. Oh, I loved that game. That was a good first evil story. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like I teamed forgot. up with Ethan Rain, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I forgot that it was the first evil that like <laughs> is the one that Ethan Rain works for. And the like bad like it's like final boss form is that spirit we see that Jenny Calendar turns into dead by sunrise, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh so well, that, one thing I yeah, go ahead. That video Sorry. game, I got stuck. I remember buying the game guide because I got stuck at. Sunnydale, the alternate Sunnydale High School where you're Xander and you have to fight Anyanka at the end. And Xander's then, like, the hardest level. That ho- level was so hard, but also because it was still, like, video games back then where it's like, oh, is this a button on the wall or is this just, like, background that you can't interact right. with? 
And I oh, think God. that was like speaking of technology, we didn't even talk about the scene in Gingerbread where we like they explain the internet to us. Like, <laughs> Willow <laughs> We don't need to talk to her on the phone and there's like the dial up and then like she's texting the like pictures of Hansel and Gretel and it's like loading slowly, remember? Oh, wait, can we talk about how quickly they find newspaper clippings from sixteen eighty nine on the internet? Like, it's literally, like, they find them so quickly. I'm like, I can't even find porn on Tumblr this fast. (laughs) But Willow is, like, invented chatting. That's, like, right? She's come a long way since she dated that demon. Yeah, Moloch, that's right. They definitely do the thing that Scream does, where, like, I still don't even remember what they're doing back, like... Back then, I remember being like, I'm not sure what this is. Like, in Scream, when she, like, calls 911 from her computer... Right. <laughs> like, I still don't really know what that is, and I like, grew up back then. Um, but, like, oh, I didn't, God. I wasn't quite sure what they were doing technology-wise when she's, like, kind of texting them from her computer. Right. Right. Wasn't she well, on like, AIM? I feel like she was just on AIM. <laughs> but did they have it in 19... 19- yeah, I guess they did. Yeah, it was 1999. Yeah. Isn't there a music video? This is far afield. Isn't there a music video where she, like, texts a guy from, like, an Excel document? Isn't that Yes. It? Kelly <laughs> Rowland and Nelly's Dilemma. <laughs> Kelly Rowland is texting from an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> it was before people thought that they would be, like, pausing on music yeah, videos. Yeah, right. <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, just, like, text from this spreadsheet. Um, also... I'm where my copy of Chaos Bleeds is so I can play it later. And they're all voiced, except for Sarah Michelle Gellar. They're all voiced by... And, well, and, and, and except for Willow. Oh, okay. Is she a sound-alike, too? Oh, yeah, I remember now. She, yeah. and actually, she's a really bad voice actress. So Willow, um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Start your listening, bad voice oh, actress. <laughs> Allison... <laughs> Allison Hannigan was in the first video game, but between the first and second video games, she had done, like, the American Pie American movies Pie, and, yeah. and, had, and had gotten, like, bigger, higher profile. So they didn't get her for the second one. And the girl who voices her in the second video game is terrible. I have to say, the Buffy voice for both of them, the woman who does it, is, like, really good. Great. It's Giselle yeah. Loren, and she yeah. was going to be the one who played Buffy when they did a pilot for a Buffy animated series. And she would have been, been great. She's still, really good. They could still do that, right? I like I know. Yeah, I really. I mean, I'm not gonna nice lie. I was really hoping is, you don't have to be. You don't have to play their real ages, right? Yeah. Like I was really right. hoping that something like that would happen with the like all the hubbub around the 20th anniversary. Like I was mm. like, maybe we'll get like a Gilmore Girls type thing where it's just like you know eight episodes of like what they're all doing now. I would love that, or like a Faith and Angel show. So the only other thing I want to point out is so I love the ending of this episode, but so I always say my one of my favorite Cordelia lines is um from killed by death when she says like tact is just not saying true stuff i'll pass (laughs) but this also this is my second favorite cordelia moment when she goes to buffy's house and finds giles and is slapping him and she's like you i found you here knocked out again and she's like one of these days you're gonna wake up in a coma and he's like wake up in a never mind (laughs) like i love Giles having to partner with Cordelia or Anya because he's always oh. just perpetually annoyed. Um, and then when they're in the car and she's doing the spell, she's like, <laughs> yeah. this is the toadstone? Where it's like, this doesn't look like a toad. No reason it should. It's from inside the toad. I hate you. Like, <laughs> like I... <laughs> well, as you know, this is a Xander hate podcast and it's also a Cordelia stand podcast and she does get to shine in this episode, she especially does. at the end when she's like has the hose on all the people <laughs> and Buffy's like Cordelia aim it at the fire and she's like oh right <laughs> and she's like oh I like the two little ones better um, I, just I like think... the two little ones better than the one big one yeah, yeah. 
a very oh. that's also like a very Jane Espenson construction, right? Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, also, but there is that one Cordelia moment where she is kind of like she's drinking the moo water. Yeah, that's right. I did want to yeah. discuss that. Like she says, like, well, it's not that she's drinking the moo water. We always say about Cordelia, she is the number one person who understands status and what it means when you're treading in dangerous waters in terms of status. And she doesn't say like Moo is going to get you. She says like, if you hang out with freaks and losers, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And she frames it as like uh, Buffy, like, don't you fucking know? Like you're already friends with Willow. Like this is not going to be good for you. Like she understands that. I don't think she understands that like, it's going to get to crypto fascism, but she, (laughs) but she does know that like, she has been reading Anna Arendt is the problem. She has not, but she does know that like, it's not going to turn out well for Buffy if she hangs out with Willow continuously. And in that sense, she is a prophet and she is true. She is right because Buffy ends up on the stake, even though she's not a witch. Right. Um, And this goes to what you guys were saying about the wish, uh, which is that weirdly Cordelia did not get to learn a lesson in that episode. So she's still emotionally where she was at the beginning of the wish, right? Like she's still badly hurt about with what happened with Xander and it makes her say as a lot of characters do on them this show it makes her say something that is too cruel because she's put too much of herself in it right like she's actually speaking to herself in that scene where she's yeah. like I hung out with Xander and I was deeply hurt because of it like me physically hurt too <laughs> yeah. yeah um and it, she does get sort of like she's kind of back in the Scoobies after that because of the hose thing she gets to at least like you know, she gets to get some of her aggression out on that crowd. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, she's also in the Scoobies because she hangs around them enough to try to get some Wesley D. Right. <laughs> I love Thirsty Cordelia when she's just as aiming for that D. <laughs> and immediately dismissive when she realizes the chemistry is no good, right? Like, that's perfect. Yeah. So what do we want to grade these two episodes? For me, this is, Men's is, like I said, an A+. Plus. Like, um... It's it's not the biggest stakes episode, but for what it wants to be, which is a Christmas episode, which is to think about the stakes of the miraculous, A plus. Like it is it you can read everything that happens on Angel the TV show comes out of this episode. A lot of what Buffy has to say as a show comes out of this episode. Uh every character's firing on all cylinders. I also love me like a treacly ending, so A plus. I think, you know, if you had asked me before we watched this episode, I would have said like, meh, I like C plus or B, but I, I think I'm going to go with like A, solid A, Matthew. Matt, what are you? I am going to... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to give it a B... A... I was, you know what, I walked into this saying it was a B minus in my head, but I'm going to give it a B now after the conversation. Oh, we moved you Aww. half a letter grade. That's something. Yeah. Yeah. Don't ever say I can't admit when I'm... <laughs> I'm You're proud right of then. us, Anthony. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and Gingerbread Boys, what do we think? Again, like, for what it wants to be, I think it does a very good job of it. Um, the mystery is, like, low stakes enough by the and that I, I mean, I'll give it an A minus. I don't know what I'm critiquing it for, though. Like, everything kind of works for me. Uh, yeah, A minus. A minus, sure. Um, I, so, Matthew, what do you think? <laughs> Before I go. Oh, I give it a, it's like on the border, B plus and A minus for me. Like, it's not the episode I'm going to show somebody to be like, you must watch this show. But, but that it's like doing lots of interesting interpersonal work. It's right. thinking, it's got strong internal metaphor that it's working out. And it has all the you characters... Know doing things 
Yeah. I think I might say A again. I don't know. Or I feel, so, like, it's weird for me to give this the same grade as a men's, because, like, they're both so very different, but I love them both. But you're not grading it against the men's. You're grading it on whether you think that what the episode set out to do, it succeeded in doing. Okay, so, yeah, A. Fine, you're right. A. I mean, we're in the middle of season three. Like, we're in the middle of, like, a really great block of episodes, so. Which is weird, because Help Us, Amends, and the Zeppo when I've, like, done rewatches are usually the episodes I, like, skip, and now we're, like, oh. in the middle of those episodes. Oh, I really like the Zeppo. I like it as just, like, as, like, an experiment in television. Like, mm. I feel like we're still dealing with the fallout of the Zeppo as a formal project. <laughs> <laughs> Have me back for the Zeppo. Oh, you've already recorded it. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um... Yeah, so thanks for being on, Anthony. Oh, guys, this was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You were great. Real Um, joy. (laughs) And if you want to follow our podcast on Twitter, you can follow us at SlayerFestX98. If you want to follow Matthew on Twitter, you can follow him at Matthew Rodriguez, one T, a G, and a Z. And if you want to follow Ian, you can follow him at IanXCarlos. What about you, Anthony? Uh, I am at me a Koopa, which is a terrible Latin joke. Although I guess if you're a Buffy fan, you probably like a stupid Latin joke. But it's me, me a Koopa, as in like a Koopa Troopa, K O O P A. What the hell's the Latin joke there? <laughs> Mea Koopa means my Mea mistake. Koopa. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a terrible. It's when like you... Angel. I have a lot of Catholic problems, Catholic <laughs> guilt. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.